0: professional development and training with two great guests, Lori Charles and Sally Ababa. And I will tell you more about them in a second. But first, I'll tell you about the handbook. Um, The handbook is the first of its kind, the handbook of systemic therapy, a resource for clinicians, researchers, educators, graduate students, policymakers. There's something in this four volume set for everything. It's a groundbreaking reference work on both the profession and the practice of systemic family therapy. It integrates scholarly literature on systemic interventions Mm -hmm. focused on children, couples, and families into one single resource. As I said, four volumes. Volume one is about the theoretical practice and research and policy foundations on the profession. Topics in volume two are all around children and adolescents. Volume three covers couples. In volume four, what we've been focusing on in our four-part live podcast series is all about global mental health, and family therapy over the lifespan. And this is an amazing work. You can find more about it at aamft.org slash handbook. You know, MFTs uh, sometimes are considered United States centric. But global mental health and taking these systemic concepts and applying them to other cultures and populations, so very important. And we're doing that today with our two guests. I'm going to tell you a little bit about them. But first, also, you want to visit BrighterVision.com. They are the sponsor for our live podcast series. All members of AMFT, believe it or not, get two months free And your Brighter Vision, a one-stop shop uh, for all things practice-related. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Lori Charles. She's an LMFT whose consultation practice is focused on scaling up family therapy practices. I like that. Across country context in multiple clinical settings with an emphasis on enhancing public mental health initiatives with vulnerable populations. She holds a PhD in family therapy from Nova Southeastern. She has two master's degrees, one from Our Lady of the Lake university, and another one in international relations from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. She's been part of numerous mental health and psychosocial support projects in diverse places like Lebanon, Kosovo, Cameroon, and Sri Lanka, among others, as a family therapy trainer and consultant. she's also serves as an analyst who's written countless things about the efficiency and integrity of these psychosocial Mm -hmm. support projects, and she'll talk about some of that today. Asali Bava is an LMFT with over 20 years of experience in human and organizational development, diversity, and collaboration. She's an associate professor at the School of Social and Behavioral Sciences at Mercy College in New York. She is a Talis Institute associate and currently the director of research and a consultant to the International Trauma Studies Program affiliated with Columbia University. Sally received her PhD in human development with a specialization in marriage and family therapy from Virginia Tech. And as the former director of the Houston Galveston Institute, she focused on organization development and community engagement. Most recently, she's consulted on disaster preparedness and response to organizations in nonprofit and governmental sectors. She publishes and presents nationally and internationally on collaborative practices, collective trauma, and therapist creativity from a relational and performative play perspective. We could do a whole nother podcast on that. All right. So happy to have you both with us. If you've ever listened to the show before, the first question is always, how did you get not only into family therapy or systemic psychotherapy, but specifically working in the context of global mental health so uh, we'll start with you laurie thank you
1: thanks for the the intro and great to be here and and have the conversation and uh really excited about the chapter and the these four um four discussions that you're planning for the podcast around international work so what brought me to global mental health i mean it's that you know that that idea that it's like where you punctuate something happening in a system you could you could you know, throw up a globe or a set of ideas that I've experienced in my life, and each one, I think, would make sense for how, how I sit here today. But probably the most formative thing that I rely on on a day-to-day basis, besides my degree in family therapy and the focus on qualitative research that, that I learned during that degree at NOVA, is that I uh, joined the Peace Corps two weeks after my defense, my dissertation defense. I mean, I had planned it, so I didn't just like take off. I had planned it and it, I departed two weeks after my defense. And I didn't see my published dissertation for another year and a half. I really had wanted to join the Peace Corps before I got my master's degree in family therapy, but I had put it off. And so this was a way to circle back to something I wanted to do. I also thought I'll never be able to do it again if I don't do it now. And I was desperate to uh, do something radically different <laughs> from, my, from my studies. So living, and for me, that was living and immersed in a language that wasn't my native tongue. So that has been formative for me, and that was where, where did you family.
0: go, Lori, on the piece? I point. went
1: to Togo. I went to Togo, West Africa.
0: Wow! And um,
1: I've worked in many many times in Africa since then, but that was the first time I'd been to Africa, and I did not know where Togo was when I was assigned Togo. I had to go look with a friend of mine <laughs> in Fort Lauderdale. Um, where is where is this uh, this country? Living in French was formative and living in a place where I had to rely on the skills that I had learned, but in a very different way than I had been trained. They were so relevant, but in a totally different way was formative. I also learned about the resource curse. I learned about colonization because Togo had been colonized by France and there's still a really deep relationship with France as that happens and formerly former colonies. So there was, it's endless, the list of things, but if I had to say, you know, that moment, you know, it's right at the top. And last was, last week was Peace Corps week. So I have to like give a shout out for Peace Corps. I'll do it again in a second. Do it again.
0: Yeah. We've had Froma Walsh on the show and she talked about the formative experience in the Peace Corps. Yeah. So I think it's one of those uh, amazing, I've never met anyone that has had that experience that hasn't had it profoundly shaped their life, both personal and professional. Dalia, what's your story?
2: Eli, first, thank you. Thanks to inviting Laurie and me to be here. And it's exciting to have this conversation. My story is I was born into global mental health. (laughs) Sitting in the U.S., we think of global mental health as everything outside of the U.S., right? So I was born in global south. I'm I'm Indian by birth and origin. And I arrived here, as you said um, in my introduction, to do my Ph.D. at Virginia Tech. So I didn't sit there thinking I'm global mental health. I got come here and then get to see myself and redefine as being part of the global south, right? So we're going to get into that, which is what is global mental health and how do we do the us and them part of it. My story partially also includes this label I like to kind of put on myself, a pot storer, a person who hangs out in the edges or steps out of tradition. So I can give you lots of examples of how I've done that. But what brought me... system pusher. Yeah, right? We don't know it. But from the age of uh, three, apparently my family story goes that I've been leaving home, that I run away to something, right? That's my mom's story uh, about me because I went to the playground because I hadn't had enough time on the playground. So that's the child in me who keeps driving me to these places where I'm curious, where I'm like, uh, I don't stop to think that others are not going there, others who look like me or should be performing in a particular way, I go towards what calls to my heart, what makes a difference in the world. And um, when I finished my master's in social work, this was in India, there was a foreign funding agency that was interviewing for people, right? And there was this tension of the finalist, a man and a woman, me, right? And I got the job and it required people to travel to rural parts of India. I was born and raised in Delhi in urban parts, and this was me entering the what would be called the developmental sector and working with people who would be considered indigenous here or untouchables um, based on the caste system. So we'll come back to that in a minute or two. But it was kind of interesting to go into that place as an outsider coming into something that's part of your country, but speaks to the very issues we're going to be speaking today about. And so that's just the entry point of where I went, and then we can continue into it. But it's a very telling place. And what also brought me into global mental health when I got here is my work in India, working with refugees around riot, and then working around Katrina and hurricane disaster issues here in disaster mental health. And then there were a couple of projects I've done with the International Trauma Studies Program using theater with the Liberian population in Staten Island in New York City. We have a huge Liberian population. We'll get into that a little bit as part of the stories come in. Last but not the least, there was a three-year international research program that was uh, funded by IDRC in Canada and hosted by the International Conflict Resolution Center in Northern Ireland. And they were looking at states where, that had experienced civil war or violence, and what were the, how was mental health and psychosocial practices addressing social transformation and the relationship between those? So I've Great. always been at the intersection of community and clinical, if that makes sense and what I'm getting at, and that's part of what global mental health is. Yes, me.
0: you both have uh, two amazing backgrounds and certainly are experts on this topic. But let's let's start with a basic definition, if I am listening to this for the first time, and I practice again in this United States-centric kind of way of thinking, first of all, what is global mental health broadly? And then why why should I care? Why is it important to me as a systemic therapist?
1: Well, I have a, a quick a, a quick answer that everyone will resonate with is COVID-19. <laughs> COVID-19, COVID-19. COVID-19 is a, is a public health emergency wherever you are on the globe, but internationally, it's, it's officially declared. what's called the P-H-E-I-C by the World Health Organization, which is part of the United Nations. So that right there is what um, global mental health looks like when I travel to uh, Lebanon to work with Syrian psychiatrists and psychologists, or when I travel to Kosovo or Sri Lanka, or anytime there's um, a response to a humanitarian situation. And that's more of my background in humanitarian situations. So a global uh, a pandemic is global by nature. That's what that means. But it you can see in the U.S. even we have so many different kinds of uh, responses happening across communities. So some of that states doing different things, but also inside a state. I'm in Massachusetts. It's very different where I live right now, and even like 20 miles away is quite different. The western side of Massachusetts. And so when in global mental health we talk about the disparity between the disparities across populations in access to healthcare and in global mental health, global mental health care. That's all it is. It's things that we do all the time, I think, and we're sensitive to as family therapists. But glo- the global part for me is when it becomes multilateral, which is multi-country. So here's the COVID-19 again. I mean, we, we talked, Sally and I were talking, we couldn't have a better a better setup for talking about global mental health because we are all responding now yeah. uh, in the field of global mental health. And disparities, I think, make a lot of sense to to family therapists. And so, when you cross a border, the, the the conversation about disparities. I mean, the, sometimes the language is different, and the the countries that you work with, literally, the language is different. So that's a given, right? You're working already outside, inside English, and outside English. But how how disparities are discussed, and what's the history of that disparity? And so really an, an interesting thing that research now about that pandemic that you can read in the Lancet is how many low and middle income countries have responded so much better with a lower morbidity and mortality to COVID-19 than a high income country. So right there is that's global mental health.
0: Did you want to add to that, Sally, about the focus of global mental health or, yeah, I, or why I, emerging therapists in the United States should care about it?
2: I think for two reasons why we should care about it. One is we sit on the top of the pile of what defines mental health, sitting in the U.S. especially, and we know that these ideas are being imported, are being taken all across the globe. And we, and the second is, we are also questioning our own practices within our own country. How does a pandemic bring out racialism? How does it happen, and this is not just happening in the US, it's, it's showing that the pandemic is affecting people of color across the globe, right? So there's always been health care dis- disparities, but also there have been disparities in how ill health manifests itself. And we have known, and as, as family therapists, we know that our individual health is held by our family, by health, by our communities. We know this very well. And we know how to engage families and communities. And that's the call of the time. And that's the shift that's happening in global mental health. As Laurie was talking about it, it has had a very biomedical focus and it's this closing the gap. And it's been kind of the high-income countries helping the low-income countries. That's been the subtext. So it, it, it continues to show what we experience here, which is who gets to speak for whom, when, where, and how, and who learns from whom. And what's coming up as global mental health is exactly what Laurie's saying the pandemic is bringing is low income countries, some countries that have had SARS before are much better equipped at being responsive to this global disaster.
0: You know, many times as systemic therapists, we think of the micro, what's happening inside the therapy room. And part of spanning the gap to global mental health is thinking about what's been certainly done successfully and other countries especially other low-income countries but also how you expand Mm -hmm. your focus to communities and an engagement level uh, which i really like how you said or how the macro societal issues impact the micro practice of systemic couple and family therapy Mm -hmm. so can you guys speak a little more about engagement and then what you write about in the chapter which really resonated with me Technology transfer, can you define that for our listeners and talk about how that applies to global mental health?
1: So uh, technology transfer is like a very fancy way to talk about uh, training, <laughs> training and teaching and supervision supervision and support. It has a, a reference point. I mean, if you want to understand why that word and in and that way, and, and that's not necessarily important to know it, unless you're really interested in economics. And I think it's fascinating because technology really is any information that people have that can promote their capacity to produce either a product or a service. That's all it is. So that's where that technology word comes from. The transfer is is uh is also attached to that. But you know I've I've used this term a few times. I I I picked it up and it's used in I mean it's used in um, the context that I work is knowledge transfer more commonly. And people have different kinds of reactions to it. And uh, so I want to you know just like any kind of label, I think we have to be so thoughtful of. How we we hold on to it lightly. <laughs> it's really relevant, depending on where you are, but it's training. It's training and capacity building. What Sally Han and I talk about in the chapter that I think is so important to emphasize, and really where there's a place for family therapists to document and research and illustrate is how do you do that? I mean, it doesn't just happen. It's not, it's not just literally a handing a, a tangible thing to someone else. It is a process and it is a relational process. And therein lies all the complexity and you know not not everyone can do it i mean it's not easy so i mean as you we right we know this like not everyone's cut out to be a family therapist or some people have to learn some skill uh, in family therapy and have to work a bit harder than they and some people are naturals so that also exists when i'm working outside the us there what are the natural skill sets that people have and then how do you scale up what's needed for them depending on what's happening in their country?
2: When we think about engagement, I think we know that as systemic therapists, that when social inequalities and inequities remain unaddressed, right, mental health, family health, community health, all gets impacted. We know this. So one of the things we write in the book is that we're not, even though we know this, we're not at the table of global mental health. Right, So we, we are saying we need to wake up to this fact that we are very well trained in thinking systemically. We know how to bring the macro into the room. We know how to take our micro skills. One of the things I'm working on is how do we address racial injustice through r- relational practices, not just social justice, but relational yeah. justice. So we know this back and forth very well. So when we think about engagement, I think it's not just thinking about taking our training or what our theories are, our models, are, and transferring it, but being, like you said, being in an engagement, multilateral process that Laurie's got her new book on, which speaks to this idea of engagement not only with each other, but with the different systems, including yeah. the states, the communities, the organizations that are involved. Like I worked for a funder, but I was in rural India when I was talking about that earlier. I was working in rural India. I was looking at development projects for men, women, and children who were living on lands that belonged to them but didn't know they had land rights. And so when you're talking about their mental health and engagement, it took us engaging the community, talking about farming, talking about multinationals coming in and talking about the displacement that was coming in as a way of talking about what was health and wellness for them. So engagement means a number of things. And we know how to do that from a systemic yeah. conceptualization perspective, but also when we work multisystemic. So I can go on, but pause.
0: Yeah, I love both of your ideas about that. Because yes, we are, as family therapists, process experts, we understand systems yeah. and how to expand the system. So if that is the common... Um, thread as relational healers, what we bring to the table, then we can more easily think about how we would expand that into other cultures uh, and society. Speaking of culture, I will talk about, we have this Q&A box where you can put in questions throughout our hour together. So question from Doug Jones in the chat room. He says, what about culture? How do you factor in culture? Do you think people should assimilate or seek support for culture? cultural uniqueness. What is a family therapist do you need to know about the culture you're entering into?
1: I would, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I, I, there's a really cool quote um, I like about like that, you know, culture is immutable. It's mutable. So immutable. And when you're working internationally, you are doing all the micro analysis that with the people who you're working with on the ground, but there's also a meta level of analysis. So there are organizations have cultures, teams inside organizations have cultures, professionals have, you know, cultures, epistemic communities. These are all really relevant on the international plane. You're not working. I almost never, ever, ever work with another family therapist when I'm working internationally. I think I can think of one time in about two dozen projects that I've worked directly with a family therapist. You know, culture is, is critical, but it's a meta, I would say. Like, really, you have to meta your ideas about what what does that mean and then it's never only just one so this is also like I don't know it's not like a family in the room but when you work with a larger system and you're you have 20 clients that you see a week you can imagine exponentially how that might look when you're crossing a border and you're working inside of a multilateral organization so I don't know if I answered the question but that's what I thought of when when he asked it and assimilation I mean in a way I sort of like dissimilate from my family therapy background (laughs) and I assimilate to the culture of the project. And of course that's constructed as we go along. I mean, these trainings take several days and they, I mean, that, that mind, that systemic mind, just like we see in the training in the U S if it's really good, right. Or have an experience in the classroom, it's constructed as we go and it's very, very powerful. But, but like, I think that balance between like, what do, what do I bring and what do I, what do I need to let go so I can understand uh, what's happening, you know, where I am?
0: Yeah, I always say you got to learn the system before you can change the system. So really being open to culture and the culture of wherever you're entering more than just ethnic or some type of diversity it is the culture of uh, even the system of care. And like you said, you're the only family therapist usually when you're working internationally. So learning how all those other pieces of the team work together. What are your thoughts on culture. So oh, yes. it's,
2: it's interesting because culture for me is very dynamic. Culture is what we create through the everyday interactions that get over time reified, institutionalized. And so for us, as we prepare to go from whatever our culture is, we have to stop and think, are you thinking about country culture? And as you're saying, there's the culture of mental health, there's the cultural, cultural or social stories, right? So you may come to India And my story about India is not the story that you're going to encounter when you get to India and you talk to a room full of people. So there is no one culture. And yet there are certain uh, historical markers, social markers, linguistic, meaning-making markers that make up culture. So we are, as family therapists, we are systemic thinkers and that is shaping us as we are shaping it. We are in the room of that dynamism. So I don't think about it, and I think this is part of it, like even in family therapy, we were learning, I mean, what are people's ethnicities, and what are the stories that go with it, as if it's fixed, Mm -hmm. and it's highly problematic, because all stories leave out some things, and it's spoken from a particular perspective. So I think we need to have that critical gaze to culture as a social practice, rather than a stagnant thing. And so how am I engaging it? Whose story? Who's bringing me into the country? What's their story about this country? Um, What is the person who's in the room? How do they see me and how do I see them?
0: Yeah, to that point, I think a lot of times uh, in the US, we have a certain understanding of mental health, and we think that's how it is everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Or Even as MFTs, we look for strength and health. It's still very pathology diagnosis-based. So how do we refrain from this kind of one-sided export only, so to speak, as you mentioned in the chapter view of mental health? How how do we learn and be open to different ways to view that when we're working across borders? You want
1: to go first,
2: Salihah, on that one? I I mean, I think I've been speaking to that. It's like, check our own hubris, (laughs) Laurie. And I love that word because... We talk about this notion of cultural humility in in our field. And before that came cultural competency. So what we've been talking, if cultural stagnant, culture as markers, that's that cultural competency model. And if you're taking that and going, I think that's that export-import model that we're talking about, that you're taking a preconceived idea rather than being in this interactive moment that we as therapists know as family therapist, as systemic therapist, that something in the room is emerging. And I need to hold, like Laurie said this, hold our ideas lightly and engage. This is that po- portion that goes back to the knowledge transfer too. It's not there's this knowledge module, even though it's written, maybe WHO brings you, UN brings you, I was working for the international organization, Swizzed. So they bring us in, in some capacity of expertise, but it's what you said, Eli, it's the capacity of process. So if we stay in the process orientation and hold our ideas lightly, the knowledge becomes a co-creative process of back and forth. It's not like, okay, here is a genogram. I'm going to teach you how to make a genogram. It's like, how does this make sense in your world? Where do you start conversations when you start inquiring into family? How does family show up in conversation?
0: Yeah, as you all talk, I keep coming back to one of these therapist common factors of curiosity, not assuming that you know, uh, but being curious. And you actually in the chapter talk about respectful curiosity. You know, our listeners love when you can give some clinical Mm -hmm. Examples. So I'm curious, Lori. I hear you're a great storyteller. So maybe you can give us some examples of how to be respectfully curious when yeah. thinking about mental health and other uh, cultures across borders.
1: I thought of one. As Sally, I was talking, I'd forgotten. So, so some of my stories I, I've written about. I have I have put uh, in uh, different publications, but some of them I have to be quite sensitive in, in what I say. But so, speaking of genograms, that's what the, was the cue. So I did a training once. Okay, so actually, before I say that, like the question that you ask about how do we not impose i'm always in the hands of people that i trust so there is always a local person if someone who's based in you know in a regional office then they have a local person that they trust and that's my in you know
0: so you I always really... are accompanied by a credible source yeah.
1: yeah yeah i mean you know do you remember all the articles we i forget who wrote them uh, around the referring person understanding mm-hmm. the referring person it's kind of like that like, I really need to know, and, you know, it's partly uh, to make my job easier and or security reasons or whatever. But so I did one training and I can say the country, this was in, in Libya and I had my training mapped out. I knew what I was going to do. I was sitting in the hotel with my contact person who wanted to look at the training, you know, modules before I started the next day. So this is someone that I'd worked with before and I knew, so I was comfortable doing that, but no one had has ever asked me that. I mean, now it's common, but before. I would just be brought in here, do your thing. And it looks great. But so here's my contact wanting to look. And and he saw on day three, I was doing a module on genogram. So this is a psychiatrist who's well-versed in family therapy and, and very familiar with that material. He's like, oh, no, no, Laura, you need to do that on the first day, the first day. And I was like, I mean, who would do that, right? Imagine, you know, it just didn't fit, like how I thought about I sh- how I should train. But this is someone who'd lived in the country, who who spoke the language, knew the material, and I trusted him. So I moved it to day one. And he was absolutely correct. And to this day, I mean, so these participants only spoke Arabic. So I'm working with uh, people who are translating and interpreting. But, you know, genograms are lovely because you don't need any words to understand what is being presented about the family. And that was a big aha for me. It's like, wow, I don't need to know Arabic to to understand, and they don't need to understand my English. So that was one thing that happened. Like immediately, we connected. And then Libya is full of tribes and clans, and family is much too small a term for them. <laughs> so they were amazing at producing geneograms on day one, and we did we did it throughout the whole training. So so moments like that, I mean, they don't come out of nowhere. I'm using people in the system from the get-go when we start having the conversations about will are you interested we're doing this and that's also how we I think work micro in you know in our work in the U.S. but letting go of what I thought how it should go and I have mm-hmm. many many examples of that uh, another one around an English speaking group more fluent in English but also Arabic speaking you know how we talk about family conflict we would say you and I would say can okay, so I so in this country, there was an actual war happening, a real conflict. So as soon as I said conflict, every I mean, I couldn't tell because it was Arabic, but it it stopped, it stopped everything. And my contact person, a different person, who also I trusted, came to me and talked about like the conflict was the way that they talked about the war. So for me to say family conflict, which is just such a benign term, but not where they were. So I was lucky because I had uh, someone who I who I trusted, who trusted me and was okay to interrupt me and correct me. I And I've, you know, and it's interesting because if I don't speak the language of the people I'm training, I'm not going to hear those things to correct, you know, like we might well, do. In it's harder industry. to
0: read the feedback when you can't speak the language. Yeah. Right?
1: I mean, and I, I, and so I, I started also doing lots of other things to try to communicate, you know, and we're also good at this, I think in family therapy, like sort of non-verbals and in a training room, you can really move around a lot. Anyway, those are two examples, like following the the pacing of the people who are on the ground, like local knowledge, basically. It's local knowledge.
0: Yeah, that's one of my big takeaways so far from our talk. You have to have someone that, a stakeholder that has the cultural cachet, so to speak, that has the in, and and you have to be comfortable enough and humble enough to take that feedback and know from the beginning, not only take that feedback, that you need that feedback. So yeah, that's a great story. What do you think about this respectful curiosity, Salia?
2: I was thinking about as Laurie was speaking about it is this notion of practices and perspectives go hand in hand and we, we write about that in the chapter when we're coming as an outsider we are bringing certain practices right based on our perspectives and being able to shift and enter into our host's perspectives redefines what the practice will look like and what it will be so that's the respectful curiosity which is seeking permission, not just assuming that this is going to work, staying in that place of like, let's talk about this together, right? Noticing how language is both a facilitator and a blocker. And I'm reminded of, of a workshop you talked about, we could do a whole, a whole workshop, I mean, a whole podcast on uh, play and performance that is part of my, one of my other areas of scholarship. And I was in China doing this workshop on play And by play, I mean the relationally co-creative process of trial and error by which we create the world around us, to put it simply, but it's a much more complex uh, moment. So I'm talking about the word play. The person who had invited me, he and I had 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 some conversations and had history. So I had assumed that he and I were on the same page when we were talking about the word play in the way I was talking about it, when it was getting translated, it was getting translated as sports. And that's one of the more common uh, definitions Mm -hmm. of play, games and sports. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So during the first break, I was there for like two days. Uh, This was the first morning, first break. Another very respected trainer, local trainer, who was also trained here in the US and gone Back to her home country, came up to me and said, I don't think you're talking, I don't think he's talking about play in the same way that you're talking about play. And that's where relationships matter because if we didn't have the relationship, I'm not sure if somebody yes. would have come and brought that to me because language and context matters, but relationships also matter. And that's one of the things that family therapists know. And I think she came from a place of she knew that I wouldn't want to be misunderstood, not just because of the ideas I was bringing, but it's that, that care for the person if that makes sense that i mean for me that was the opposite version of respectful curiosity in the sense of how she approached it
0: you know uh, so much as you said you have to do that so that these family therapy interventions don't get lost in translation and that could be a very you know if you're trying to be helpful but if you make a faux pas that you don't even know is a faux pas i mean it, it changes the whole context of everything so both of your stories point to that. You know, The other thing I was thinking about, we all went to three really good programs of MFT training, co-empty programs, but I don't know about you, but I never got any training on (laughs) global mental health or anything outside of the borders. As you said, we've moved from cultural awareness and now into cultural humility, and we've done a nice job of blending that into our accredited training programs. But much of what you all do is train therapists how to do this work, and which is a focus of the chapter. So if our audience is you know kind of split between emerging professional students and preclinical fellows and also very seasoned mfts but if if i don't want to if i'm listening to this and like hey you know we're family therapists are needed and now with technology you know you can be helpful like we're doing right now without even leaving the confines of your home so if i want to get more training on how to interact uh with across borders how to be helpful consultant to this technology transfer of family therapy to other cultures. How do I get trained in this and where do I go?
2: Our favorite phrase, a phrase that Laurie and I use is leave home. Yeah. Leave your home. That's the <laughs> first step. Whatever home means, I don't mean just our family home as we think about it, but family therapy is our home. So, how are you getting other perspectives engaged in? Laurie got hers in international. Relations or diplomacy? Uh, relations. Relations. And mm-hmm. my my I feel my training comes from my background in social work. Right. And the way social work was done in India was it was very much using Western models. The textbook were all from the US. So I I got inducted into Western perspectives. So for me, leaving home is to reconnect with home, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, theoretically, conceptually. So there are different ways of thinking about that. But first is that critical gaze. But there's more. Laurie, what are you thinking?
1: I love the leaving home because it reminds me of the story that you told about when you were a little girl and you away. <laughs> and when I joined the Peace Corps, I mean, I was leaving home. I literally left home, but I left my family therapy home. So immersion in the place that you arrive is really useful. And you can do that on the internet, uh, reading things. There is These things are already happening, these kinds of projects. And I'm involved in one, and actually, uh, Eli, you uh, you did a podcast a while back with Fred Piercy, and he talked about it. So this is the UNODC project called TreatNet Family. So you can you can find TreatNet Family uh, training package online, and you can look and see how the concepts have been translated into this evidence-informed scaling-up family therapy family therapy project that has been going on for about two and a half years. I was part of the initial group that Fred talked about in Vienna in 2018, and I've done, I think, five or six trainings using that package. The package is public now. It's been translated into multiple languages. One of the first things I would want to tell a family therapist is, why don't you go read that? It's especially focused on substance use. I mean, that's the purpose of it, to reduce substance use in adolescents by working with a family. So that's a real, I mean, there are tools that are already available in immersion. And I think in some of those tools that are like home, but different, it's, a different, it's an adaptation of uh, how we might talk about substance use in the U.S. Uh, that's one thing I'd recommend is reading, reading outside your home.
2: And I would say for programs and for AMFT, we really have to look at ourselves. I mean, the, the, the question you're asking brings uh, the, sheds the light back on us who are we? Are we a discipline? Are we going to be defined by the American context of being a modality? Or do we go to the spirit of what Family Therapy was, which was interdisciplinary? So I feel like as a teacher, as a faculty member, I have to constantly look at the readings that I'm offering to my students. Are there international authors in some of those readings, right? Not to confuse international context and training, because I belong in, in another group, which is the International Certificate for Collaborative and Dialogic Practices. And there are 14 countries, 14 programs, I should say, worldwide that have taken the curriculum and made it their own, right? So as part of that network, that's another way to join in, which is what are international networks you can join in, but that's not the same as global mental health as we're talking about today. So when you think about global mental health, I think starting with what are healthcare disparities in our communities, And how are we addressing that? And what's the global context within the U.S.? U.S. gets isolated because of all the things that we can talk about in the way we we privilege whose research counts and whose doesn't. If we start engaging and questioning these practices and engaging with scholars worldwide, by staying where you are, you're leaving home. You're crossing your border of what is doable and what's not doable, what's allowable and what's not. And in that moment, you start training yourself into a new language system. One of the systems that if you're going to travel in the global mental health context is this language of not mental health, but mental health and psychosocial psychosocial practice. That is not part of just global mental health. It's part of how in my the way I came to it was through disaster response. So there is the uh, International Agency Standing Committee that talks about it. There is um, the International Organization of Migration. They have a manual, like like a free manual that you can Google. Mm -hmm. And I'll I'll put up the link in a minute here. But there are ways by which you can start getting familiar and connecting to the sub-chapters or sub-groups of those organizations. WHO, Red Cross Red Mm, uh, Red Crescent, they're all entry points by which we can do it. But first, the programs have to introduce these ideas and say, we matter at the international and the global stage. If we don't go beyond the US borders in our thinking and in our practices, we're not going to be doing this work.
0: Now, you all are experts. People come to you now from different cultures and want your opinion and want you to consult on these collaborative teams. But if I'm just listening to this for the first time, and this is kind of blowing my mind. We have enough problems in our own country, but people actually need systemic therapists to help out. How do you go about if you want to do this work and you have a good systemic framework and you're curious and you're open to immersing yourself in other cultures by leaving home, as you all said, how do you go and find these opportunities?
1: Good question. And actually, you know, I've worked with a few um, MFP, uh, you know, fellows, minority fellowship program, um, with AMFT, and they talked about, like, where's the door? Where's the door to doing this work? Do I really have to join the Peace Corps? No. Do I have to go do a degree in international relations? No. I mean, there are individual things I think you can take agency to do. And this idea, I mean, we're using it as a metaphor of leaving home, but reading outside your discipline. And this is something that's useful in the world that we live in today and what's happening right now, actually, in the world we're living in today. So why is it that, that some states in a low-middle-income uh, region uh, responded better? And what's the history of SARS? You know, I think that using what's in front of you and taking an international perspective on it. And by that, I would say, use the JANA space. And this is something I learned at Fletcher. It has been critical for helping me understand how to look at what's happening domestically, and then look the other way at the international aspect of the thing that you looked at domestically. So the questions are different, but you have to look both ways. Because that's how you know it's a facility with the international system and the international plane. So, this is uh, this is you know, United Nations organizations, uh, WHO and uh, you know, IOM, and there are many kinds of standards and norms, I would say, around mental health and security and well being that are so essential uh, to the work we do, but very familiar for family therapists. I think they're way more familiar. For family therapy, scholarship and literature, you know, that's my bias than other mental health professions. And that's been my experience. It's like we have so much in common with some of these, um, these norms, you know, about how systems work. That's a real a basic one. And that communities do better when the families in the community do better. So how do you help the family do better? You have to know how to work with the family. I mean, it gets pretty simple. <laughs> And so, yeah, so that and that really matters at the international level. So I would find a way that that matters for the thing that you're interested in or the community or the region or the language or the problem. And then go go and immerse yourself in there. Yeah. And and tell us about it. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I I would say, first of all, AMFT needs to create something around this so people can connect. I'll just put out that call to our group based on this podcast and other things Laurie and I've done and others are doing. And in the systemic handbook, there is a lot as well. But here's, here's a very easy example, but it also is something that is, I think, very critical. We have to look at what matters to you, what counts. So when you say you want to do global mental health, Are we romanticizing? Are we making it sexy that I get to go through WHO and get to go to the UN, do something? Let's own it. That is sexy for some people, right? But that may or may not be the entry point. So here's another entry point. And not to say that is not. You can look up for job postings in the UN website. There are groups you can enter. And we as family therapists have to think, this is engagement work that I learned from India and from doing disaster response. Mental health sometimes doesn't sit apart. Sometimes it's, and that's the psychosocial. It gets integrated. So we have to look for how am I willing to integrate and come in because of our systemic training, we can understand different ways that people are talking. We are already trained to move in and out, to be like, like more fluid than most mental health professions are. So bring that as an access or a resource point by which you can then introduce why families and communities matter right now is one of the most important times because everybody's talking about families and communities because of the pandemic. So this is the time for leadership to reach out to an organization and say, here is how I can help you. And this is why we matter. So that's one thing. Sometimes you may not have an introduction. So what is an example of that is I was teaching a course last semester on um, disaster response and leadership. And I approached one of our communities here who works to promote anti-oppressive practices, right? And they work in India, they work in Uganda, and they work in the US. And I didn't know what I was entering into. It was, they were going to be a project-based, community project-based partner. And once we started working, the help they wanted was to tell their stories, to tell their stories as human rights activists. And our job was to develop a toolkit on how to get those stories told. So in the process of working with them, my students were engaging with, with people from Uganda, were engaging with people from the US, they haven't gotten to India yet, but that is a small entry point by which my students are getting exposed. But here is the irony of all that, Eli, none of the MFT students were able to take that course because the courses, the course was an elective, and our program, our curricular, limits the opportunities our students can have unless the student is will, willing to take an extra course. So the onus is left on the person rather than the system. And we have to look at our own system as to why are we closed? Why are we not replicating what isolation looks like or the isolationist practice or what is...
0: Man, I have so many more questions. I want to get to the chat room, though, and our remaining... Sure. 10 minutes. This is interesting. This is flipping. We talked about crossing borders. This is taking the spirit of what we've said domestically. Also something very topical, much like the pandemic. What has been happening in the United States lately is this anti-Asian sentiment. So this is Lillian Chen. She is a first time participant in an AMFT event. And she writes... More Asian-Americans are confused and upset about the situation currently going on, Mm -hmm. especially a lot of Asian-American seniors or middle-aged Asian women are afraid to go out and be outside. We would like to know what you all think, what we can do to help those victims who were attacked or very badly and their families are afraid. Um, So what can we do with something that is happening Lo- uh, you know, locally within our borders, but has certainly international and cultural ramifications.
1: I'm glad this came up. I mean, I, the, so the logic of like listening to local knowledge is so critical even here. And especially when you have the impulse, like I want to help, I want to do something that's so human, it's so appropriate, but, but what, what, do, how do I do that? So, I mean, like first and foremost, is like, who, what is the community asking for? What, what are the needs? And what's interesting, I think, about this situation in many situations I've worked in is there's often it's often not clear because that group has been hidden or is silenced or silent. And uh, we don't know. So that's a that's a problem. You know, I would I go back to the inductive, like find some folks on the ground who can tell a little bit about uh, what needs there might be. And that's a really positive and proactive thing to do.
0: Perfect. Sally. I know you have to have a yeah. heart out here in a couple of minutes. So I'll let okay. you get your last word in, and then you can tell listeners how to continue the dialogue with you, how to reach you if they want to keep talking about global mental health.
2: Yeah, thank you. I think that question brings it home, that global mental health is no longer an us and them. It's happening here. It may or may not, you may or may not be part of the community, but you're in this country. And if we can start looking at our own um, inequalities racially, socially, and start addressing that, we are doing the work of global mental health at one level because these ideas will filter in and out of these state country borders. So think about how when we are participating, how is that shaping part of the larger discourse wherever you are, right? And then what's the small dialogue you can start as a systemic therapist in your community, in your church, that brings those outside voices in, whatever the outside is in your community. Starting to s- traverse through that, we are already resourcing ourselves because we're always outside of somewhere. It's not just the state borders. So that's that's my, my take on how you might, because those things create threat. It is already like, in that shooting, there were also in the neighboring stores were some Hispanic owners, store owners. And they were starting to get concerned that they are going to be the next people are going to be targeted. And we know they've already been targeted. It's not like news, but that's the fear. So how do we start having those everyday conversations with people? And we are experts at that. You can go into a market or a store somewhere and say, hey, how's it going for you, right? How's your family doing? We know how to ask these questions and engage. And I would say that's the work. And they can reach me at my uh, last name, Bava, B A V A, put a D R in front of it, drbava at gmail.com. And thank you. Thank you. I love this conversation. I can go on.
0: Yeah, I I love talking to people that are passionate about the field. And you, that again, last story kind of brought it all home. So to me, I took so many things today away from our talk, but especially this idea that I already have as a MFT more skills to do this work than i thought so if i thought i was very disconnected and i just dropped in today to learn i mean i uh you can get involved and it impacts whether you leave the comfort of your home so to speak your metaphorical home or you not uh, it, it impacts you and and it will continue to influence the field of systemic therapy which is certainly more than just what goes on in the united states Lori, how can people contact you
1: Um, I would recommend going to a website. It's the globalfamilysystems.com. And this is a project I just completed with a colleague. And so you can access me there. There's a way to email me
0: from that website. Great. All right. I'd like to remind our listeners that we still have two more live AMFT podcasts to go. Registration is open today for our next live podcast, Friday, April 2nd. 11 to 12 Eastern, a systemic conceptualization of interventions with families in a global context. A very nice companion to the dialogue we've had today, and that is with Dr. Mudita Rostogi. You can find us wherever you find your favorite podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. We love hearing from you you can get a hold of us at the amft on twitter i'm at dr eli live you can send me an email at eli at northstarcounselingcenter.com you can go to eli we listen to your feedback it really informs what we do on the podcast now in our third season you can go back and hear all of the archives including that interview with fred Piercy that Lori mentioned that talks about the international effort there And once again, we thank you for stopping in and listening. And until next time, my friends, stay systemic.